I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I am Matt Looker. Hi, I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1967's How I Won the War, an absurdist wartime satire starring Michael Crawford as horribly inept British officer Ernest Goodbody, leading his troop into certain calamity. But it also features one John Lennon who, as I understand it, appeared in this film during breaks from writing Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, so I, I wanted to start discussion, first of all, by saying that I don't know what I was expecting when we decided to do a podcast about films centered around a band from the 60s yep but i find myself yet again saying very much of its time isn't it <laughs> uh that, that old motif <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yet again um yeah it's the kind of film that just doesn't get made these days anymore it's very much uh, a movement from that period pushing that absurdist surrealism to to quite extreme lengths how did you get on with that aspect of it well, it's, as always, the thing that really surprises me is I'm watching it thinking um, this was shot in 1966. You know, in my, in my head, people weren't quite dropping acid yet, <laughs> though, of course, they were. The Beatles have been dropping acid for a, a year or so by this point. But I always think, well, how did this happen so quickly? The fact that pop music suddenly got a load of sitars in it and everyone started wearing loads of like paisley and, and kaftans and british cinema 
it, it, all of a sudden becomes very, very surreal and it starts mm. to discard a lot of narrative structure. So even a, a film like this, which is based on a book that apparently uh, is nowhere near as absurdist as the film, a decision is made that um, this can be a bit nuts, you know, mm. and uh, and it doesn't need to have a story that people necessarily understand or can follow easily. Um, yeah, which is because I was watching this film and thinking because I think it's fair to say that the the first half hour of this film I found difficult to follow. Yeah, it felt a little bit impenetrable to me. It felt to me like every single line for the first half hour was vying to be a punchline of some kind, yeah. which makes it very fast paced and very difficult to understand. And I think that that kind of damages the film in some way, because actually once that first half, I, I almost want to say once the first half hour of the film calms down, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I feel like the film hits its stride a little bit more. And yeah. actually the, the point of the satire starts coming through more at that point. It seems more, easy to understand the commentary that the film is making in certain areas mm. um but yeah it feels very sort of in your face uh, it's almost like it, it feels like it's a new or a young genre that kind of tonal film because the film doesn't feel like it knows how to handle uh that aspects of its yeah you know, do you know what i mean it's, like it's a good way of thinking about it, it hasn't sort of understood its own constructs yet right. so it's sort of just throwing everything at uh at, yeah. at the script yeah it hasn't found its feet yet yeah you know yes i know what you mean yeah it's i mean because there's a there's a lot as it goes on you're right it you know it, the film this this genre and the film itself like take a while to find find their feet but as it goes on the the sort of satire the satirical elements of it um uh, become like quite acute Mm. And, and and it's sort of and it's clearer what it's trying to do, um. But and and I was thinking, well, there's a lot of um, war war films and uh, British fiction about the two world wars. Um, there's lots and lots of commentary in there on the British class system, you know. So you mm-hmm. think about Blackadder and the way that all of it, you know Blackadder goes forth, of course. That it, it the way that all the officer class, are sort of upper class twits who think of the war as just a sort of jolly good game yes yeah um and you know and it's the sort of working class boys who are who are dying stupidly being sent over the top to you know sent out of trenches to just run at the enemy and inevitably get shot um and and how i won the war the second world war uh film is is doing something quite similar where so so the main character michael crawford um is uh, an officer, a non-commissioned officer, I think, mm-hmm. and um, so we're sort of told that he 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 has his own place in the class hierarchy because, like, he's above the sort of squaddies and he's drafted in, yeah, uh, as as like leading their troop. Um, but also, he went to grammar school and not a not a proper school, yes. So yeah. the, you know, so the sort of proper officer class looked down on him, you know, um, and he's quite unpopular with that troop. Um, and as the thing goes on, you realize that he uh, thinks of everyone as quite disposable and thinks of the whole thing as a game. Mm. Um, and yeah, so um, and and um, and actually, John Lennon fits quite well into that. I think. Yes, his, his character does. You know? Yeah, I think let's. 
I want to talk about John Lennon's character. Obviously, you know, given the nature of our podcast, we probably should cover it at some point. It'd be an idea. Yeah. <laughs> but I think first of all, um, one of the things I want to pick up, you just said there about the satirical nature of the film. I was really quite surprised by, but by, by the end of the film, I felt like it had been really brutal in its coverage of its own satire. Mm. You know, it starts off very, Silly, you literally got the guy. I for you know, in my mind, it's still oh, the guy from some others do have him. Yeah, is is doing his silly slapstick stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. actually, by the end of the film, it's like you've you've been, it's, it raises some very powerful points mm. about double standards and hypocrisy, and really quite savage in its send up of the idea of patriotism. Yes, and and I kind of wasn't prepared for that. I feel like it's it was a very different film by its end than how it started yeah yeah i think um and there are, and also it its depiction of uh war and its bloodshed is quite unflinching as well yeah. in a way that really took me by surprise yeah you know if you think about the war films sort of more modern war films so you think about the first half hour of saving private ryan um, yeah. which, which yeah. is absolute carnage and, mm-hmm. and was quite shocking at the time it was this sort of 1998 um and, you know, this was a Steven Spielberg film. So it's not like anyone went in thinking, oh, this will just be like an E.T., you know. <laughs> but but, but yeah. generally, well, no, I, I suppose, you know, he'd, he'd already done um, much more hard-hitting things like Schindler's yeah. List. So, yeah, it's not, not really a fair comparison. And Hook. But, and Hook, of course, yeah, his, his masterwork in many ways. You know? <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure anyone was expecting the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan to be quite as brutal as it is, mm, yeah. um, quite as visceral as it is. Um, but that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, to land that point. Yeah, and so uh, what? Thirty years before this, so you know, certainly, how I won the war doesn't have a half-hour sequence that is like that. But when shooting starts, people get shot and they die, and there is blood and limbs are lost, and, yeah. and you see it, you know, and and it just it and it's quite shocking because you're not expecting it at all. A because of the the, the period when this film was released and also because it, it's just sort of upended your expectations. Cause a lot of this is like quite light satire. And as you say, like, you know, it's, it's Frank Spencer doing it. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, exactly. But uh, I, but I, cause I, you know, thinking about the, the bloodshed part of it, there is, I think, I think the, the comedy is a little bit uneven in the film, but mm. there are some bits that I really enjoyed. Yeah. One of, the bits that I laughed most at was um, the guy with apparently his legs blown off um, and his sweetheart saying to him, just run him under the cold water, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah. But, um, but, but that's, uh, I guess an example of how that's treated more um, uh, in, in a silly way. But I was also very impressed with the artistic approach to uh, the, the bloodshed and the violence when they came, this idea of actually setting that apart from the rest of the film by having that as filtered black and white, you know, black and white footage that is in coloured filters yes. as, as a visual standout. Um, like it's a very clear separation, differentiation between the, the true violence of war and the uh, comedy narrative that's happening in the film. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's quite interesting that they, that, that um, Richard Lester clearly made a artistic choice to really highlight the the horrors of war in that way, yeah. albeit still in the setting of a satirical film. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know the color filter thing you're talking about is um, 
so so to begin with you're not quite sure what is being done mm. and you think uh, it, it's a color filter in the same way that in in magical mystery tour uh the the, the bit of footage that accompanies flying mm-hmm. is filtered in sort of one color across the screen at, right, one, yeah. at one time so uh i think the first time it's green and yeah. um and some of the footage you're seeing, I think, is actual war footage. It is, that's like right. Yeah, you can news, tell. Yeah. You know, stock footage of some kind, um, which just sort of, it, it, it again, sort of enhances the sort of the, the realism a little bit. And then there's a motif whereby, uh, to begin with, in each of these sequences, one of the men dies, is killed, and then after that is represented by a... Um, a, a, as a they they play themselves as a life size toy soldier, coloured the same colour as the yes as the uh, sequence in which they died. So, yeah. So there's green and then there's pink and then I forget which order. It well, is. the next colour is yellow, but I don't think we actually see a yellow soldier. But then by the end, there's a uh, there's a sequence on the bridge where you see lots of soldiers yeah. travelling across the bridge, and it's not called out in any way, but you can see that there were some that were blue and different colours, but they 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 weren't part of. Um, good bodies troop their their um, general sort of uh, look at soldiers at large who have obviously yeah. been in battle. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so what what's being done there is this idea that um, good body himself is not um, uh, is not particularly bothered when his men die because it's not the way he thinks about war. He, you know, he thinks, but he spends a lot of the film uh, trying to get a, a cricket pitch built. Yes, in. Where are they? Tangier or so? Or where are they? North Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, As you know, it's North Africa. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that one character is like, are we in yeah. North Africa yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so every time one of them dies, they're sort of represented by a toy soldier because that's how he thinks about war. And it, because mm. these men are kind of disposable, you know. You think you think back to, um, I think it's the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth where he, he rings up Field Marshal Haig, played by Jeffrey Palmer, who is there looking at toy soldiers on his desk and sweeping them into it like with a dustpan right. with a brush into a dustpan you know it's the same kind of thing they're see- they're seeing these men it's like a big game of risk or something like that you yeah. know they're just seeing the- all these men as like pawns in their in their game essentially you know and it's um and the thing is like you can't quite work out what's being done to begin with because they don't tell you no no exactly um, and i think that's cuz cuz that's a really good example to highlight why on first watch it just feels like something that is happening on screen that has no real artistic merit and it's is actually there because it's it looks silly or strange yeah and it's only you know thinking about it in the way you just explained shows that there is a larger point being made by doing that yeah uh, i actually think that from what i understand the film isn't held in particularly high regard yeah. uh, and i was quite surprised by that because i think that it feels like the reason for any sort of uh, bad opinion of, of the film uh, as it stands at the moment is down to like an a surface of the movie. Yeah. But actually, you know, thinking about it and watching it and having it settle, I feel like it actually should be held in a bit more higher regard. Yeah. To the extent that, and this is going to really put me on the line here, yeah. there are some parts of this film where I felt like an obvious comparison could be made with Doctor Strangelove. Right, which obviously one considered one of the greatest comedies of all time, um, made three years before this, I think sixty four. I think it came out something like that. But yeah, I think I think there is an argument to be made that actually it could be held in higher regard in a similar kind of vein. 
maybe not to the extent because it's it's a bit inconsistent, but mm. it's just as potent, I think, in its uh, sending up of, of you know of, of approach and attitudes to war at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, and, and I think uh, certainly. Uh, so you know, we were both watching this for the first time. I'd never mm. seen it before, and um, uh, it, yeah, I mean, similarly to begin with, I thought. Okay, this is another surreal '60s unstructured, you know, film, um, and kind of strapped in for that. Uh, but th- but then, yes, as it went on, there are bits. I'm not going to go so far as to say I was sort of moved by bits of it, but like it, it, it was. You know, I'm very rarely moved. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's completely dead inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, famously, um, <laughs> but um, but certainly there are bits that, that sort of really made me stop and think for a while like mm. much more than i was expecting to yeah know? and, and uh, there are serious moments in the film. And there are i mean so especially towards the, the film's end you have these quite you have some big speeches that yeah. feel really quite powerful yeah uh including lennon's which i guess i, I think we should probably cover when we talk about lennon mm-hmm. at the moment yeah but also there's um the character of spool when he dies and it cuts between him sort of you know having been kind of grazed with a bullet in his head um leaning against uh, a vehicle and it cuts between that and the yellow filtered violence footage from shortly before that scene takes place yeah. and it's and you see him lying like quite like you know seriously it's quite a somber moment in the yeah. film yeah um and it really sort of ties together the it's the moment i think where the 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 horror of the violence of war as it's played out in those color filtered segments mm. actually then ties into the comedy narrative of the main film. Yeah. Um, they come together and there is a moment where this same shot is mirrored across both the segment and the, the main narrative mm. um, and it cuts between them a, a few times. Yeah. It feels like the two of those things are sort of dovetailing a little bit and it happens right towards the end of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, those there are definitely moments where it feels like, oh, this film is now suddenly being very serious and quite powerful as a result because you're not expecting it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Shall we talk about Lennon now? Because oh, yeah. we to get on to him. Uh, would you be so kind as to remind me, in what context is Lennon making this film? Where are the Beatles at at the time when he suddenly swans off to Spain and features in a war film? Uh, sure. So, cast your mind back. Uh, <laughs> August the 29th, 1966, the Beatles play their final concert before a paying audience, Candlestick Park, San Francisco. Um, they have decided that this will be their last concert, or, or, or at the very least that they're going to take a break 
So, you know, they haven't announced it that they're going to stop touring, but between them, they have agreed they're going to stop touring, at least for now. So they're all faced with the prospect of uh, having a, a fair amount of free time for a while. They've been on this this sort of juggernaut um, for the past four years or so, where they're making two albums a year and releasing what three or four non-album singles uh, mm. a, a year. And they've already made two films. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, so, and, and they haven't stopped. You know, it, it, they've had they've had the odd break and the odd holiday, but basically, they haven't really stopped. This is the first time where they're really taking the foot off the gas. Mm. Um, and so, John sort of describes in uh, one of like an interview he gave later, where he said, like, uh, you know, Richard Lester asked me to do this film. And I said yes, just because I wasn't sure what else to to do. Really, like he didn't really know what to do with his, with his time. Um, he was sort of faced with the prospect of suddenly you have a lot of free time, so you can either do nothing. And by the way, I mean John, as is you know, over the next few years, he's very good at doing nothing. Mm. Like he he loved doing nothing. He was quite quite lazy by nature. And but basically said yes because you know it, it was a project. You know, so they were kind of all going off and doing their own thing for the first time. George went to India mm-hmm. with Patty. He went there for the first time. Paul went off on holiday to Kenya with Mal and Ringo uh, went out to visit John on the set in uh, in Spain. But yeah, like, you know, it's it's sort of interesting looking at the timeline. They finish, uh, they do the last gig, San Francisco, um, August 29th. Uh, the next day, they fly back from LA to London. Um, and then... Six days later, John flies to Hanover to begin wow. filming How I Won the War. So this is um, so obviously this has all already been agreed. Yes, yeah, know? yeah. Because I think um, even though they had agreed among themselves um, that they weren't going to tour anymore for the time being, I was sort of under the impression that they hadn't sort of made any plans. But John obviously has, you know, mm. if, like you know, if he's he's obviously already seen the script and said yes to the thing and is aware that he's going to go out and do it straight away. So yes, like, there's a yeah. bit of a plan in place there, isn't there? Yeah, it you is. Know, yeah, it's, right, it, yeah. it's, a, you know, it's a bit more structured than I was aware of. Mm. You know? But yeah. we should talk more about as well. Um, uh, it feels like it's a turning point for him. Yeah. And obviously for the band. I, I think I, I feel like in sort of when, when we talk about the Beatles timeline, this break is very, very significant. Yeah, uh, it's the you know it's them spending time apart for the first time in several several years, and also looking at potential outlets for their creativity outside of their decor for them. Yeah, but I hadn't realised until we started watching this film what it meant in terms of uh, like even just an image change yeah. for him and for the group as well. Because yeah. I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording about him having his hair cut. Yep. And wearing glass, uh, wearing the glasses, he then obviously became famous for. Yeah, which I'm assuming the glasses were part of the character first. Yes, I think so. So they're like you know they were sort of typical glasses of the time um, that his character would be wearing. Yeah, um, and then it's it they're, they're, he then presumably adopted them as part of his ongoing image from that point. Yeah, so I mean, um, yeah, so these are the sort of round, uh, sort of granny glasses that mm. is like so much part of John's the sort of iconography of John Lennon that we now know. This is um, some, not quite the first time he wears them. You think about help. There's a scene where they're all in disguise and he's an old man. Right. You know, and, you know, 
and, and it's like, oh, we'll just put it about we're going there. Never you mind. Or, you know, so <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. he's wearing, uh, he's got a, like a big false beard and he's wearing like round glasses in that as well. Um, so, but I mean, I've no idea where, at what point he thinks, oh, I like the look of these. I'm going to wear these. Yeah. But so, but the significant thing is here. So he's getting his hair cut. This is, this is a big deal. Like it's in, it's in the papers that he's got his hair cut. And, yeah. and he's sort of pictured with this uh, slightly cute sort of page boy. As in like no longer a mop top. Right? Yes. That's the big deal, isn't yeah. it? Because that, that was their identifying visual thing. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the Beatles hair in general has always been a, just a really big deal <laughs> in terms of like tabloid depictions of them. You know, you think about when they go to America for the first time and like yes. be- Beatle wigs are a really funny thing, yeah. you know, that, that you know that, that's being sold for merchandise, all this stuff. It's an echo maybe of sort of uh, Elvis getting his hair cut when he went into the army you know it's it's a similar kind of thing it maybe kind of signifies the end of that uh sort of teen idol bit and Mm. you know a sort of growing up if you like and so like for john and for the beatles it seems quite significant because they've made a conscious decision as i say to stop touring there is maybe a part of him that thinks i care less about being attractive to teenage girls anymore yeah like like, bear in mind he's there's been very few pictures of him you see pictures of him like recording at Abbey Road and things where he's wearing like the thick NHS framed mm. uh, glasses. And there's a couple like in Paul's front room at Fortland Road where they're writing songs and you see you see that. But like he's not been seen in public wearing glasses pretty much at all. Yeah, that's like, interesting. He, yeah. You know, he, he takes them off. He always takes them off when he's in public. Yeah. You know, and he's he's blind as a bat by all accounts by, by doing that. Like, he yeah. can't, you know, he's not wearing contact lenses or anything. You just can't see. Um <laughs> So it's interesting that he uh, there's a sort of shedding of this image, and he seems quite ready to do that. Yeah, uh, or at least you know he, he's he's thinking in a different way now. You know, and you know he's and he's now going to go and write "Strawberry Fields Forever," which is sort of perhaps like the sort of most totemic song in terms of I think in a different way to most people. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and obviously a massive departure musically or lyrically um, yeah. for uh, him at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that they sort of coincide all together, isn't it? And um, and obviously the the, beat, the the haircut that he gets is for the film. Yeah. I wonder how much is driven by him saying an image change feels right about now and how much is him just happily handing himself over to the, uh, you know, the, the vision of the film and saying, you know, do whatever you need me to do to look like my character's supposed to look. Yeah, I think I think probably... Probably more the second one. I don't yeah. think he's probably not consciously thinking of it as an image change. I need an image change, yeah. No, I think, you know, he's he's sort of doing it. He'd be sort of aware of the significance of it. But I think, but what I mean is, I think the significant thing is he has been someone who has always thought wearing my glasses in public is uncool. I don't want anyone to see me wearing glasses. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, by the way, this is not even just when he was like a rock star like in Liverpool he would yeah, sure. when he was younger yeah, imagine, yeah. he didn't really let people see him wear glasses all the time because yeah. you know because uh, you know he just thought thought it didn't look cool but I think uh, but if you think about his state of mind where yes all of this is uh, being done so that he can more accurately you know portray the character of Gripweed but he obviously at some point looks at himself in these glasses and thinks um, oh this, uh, this is like okay this. Yeah yeah, 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 and I can see bonus. You know, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, like it wasn't led by that first, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you know, but but it, but from that point on, he 
well, he's basically never seen without glasses from that point on. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. yeah. So he, um, yeah, he is, he is obviously just more comfortable in that idea that I'm not trying to portray an image to the world anymore. It's, you, know? you know what? I was just, I was just trying to work out, do we see him without glasses? I was just, and it just made me realize that it's the double fantasy album cover yeah. or, or, you know, sort of Lennon in that period. Mm. Um, and it only just occurs to me, I've always found that quite striking. Like, it's an odd picture of John. And I think it's You're because right. it's the only time you see him at that age without glasses. Yeah, so those that photo show in 1980, which is not that long before his death, yeah. where, where, where Annie Leibovitz put, took those pictures of him and Yoko in the Dakota. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's without glasses. Yeah, but it's never occurred, because I've always thought that, that it looked odd. And I think it's because, oh, I think maybe he looks a little bit gaunt and obviously he looks yes. quite old. And yes. there's there's obviously a big period before that point where he's not really much in the public eye. Yeah. So I thought maybe that was the reason. But actually, now that you mention it, I think it's also because you just I'm not used to seeing him, yeah. particularly at that age, without them. True. Yeah, it's never really occurred to me before. But you're right. Yeah. What did you, um, What did you think of his performance in the film? I think I think he's very good. You know, in, in a way, it's funny. Like when when we watch these films where the Beatle is acting, uh, which has sort of ma- mainly been Ringo films, you know, and so you have certain expectations. Um, if you think about uh, when we were talking about. Um, Ringo in uh, that'll be the day. Mm. And we were talking a bit about um, this is the first time that he is like he doesn't have his mates to back him up. You know he's you know he's and like maybe and and like he actually kind of thrives without them in a way. And like this is sort of interesting case study for that as well, where John is sort of away from the rest of the Beatles doing something on his own. Is this his first solo project, as it were? Like. So like let's think. So like Paul has already gone off and done the Family Ways score, which is a thing that is just him. Has John done anything that is on you know that like any kind of creative endeavor that is just a John Lennon work? Not not that this is a just a John Lennon, no, work, but like he's doing you. it on his own, not with the rest of the Beatles. This is probably the first thing, right? I think. Yeah, I can't. Oh, he's done the books, right? He's oh, yeah, he's the books. there the we books. go. Yeah, of course, books. yeah. I was thinking, I felt sure that it was something you right, that, isn't it? The Spaniard in the works and... Yeah, yeah. But, okay. um, but yeah, it, 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 so he's sort of, he's there, like, with, without the other Beatles, you know, and so he is used to, in films, like, A, being indulged quite a lot, right? You know, so, like, the, the, we spoke a bit when we were talking about help. We spoke a bit about how... They obviously had a fair bit of power on the set of Help, probably a bit more than they did on the set of Hard Day's Night, because um, they could muck about and get stoned, and and actually that was kind of what was wanted from them in the film anyway. Mm. And they were probably not learning their lines all that assiduously, and probably like just looking at a script just before doing a take, and then yeah. do, doing a quick take, and then learning the, the next bit. Yeah. That kind of yeah, of course. Right. So on this, I was sort of watching him in terms of his interactions with other characters and there are there are bits where like his lines are quite short and yeah and you think okay um maybe the same thing is happening um but then as it progresses he gets more and more dialogue he gets more to do and he's quite he's quite convincing i th- I, I was gonna say that because i think that early on in the film there were there, i think the very first line I could be wrong i think the very first line is on the cricket pitch and he goes up to good buddy Michael Crawford's character and says, um, can I rob your ball? So it gives me great pleasure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I 
sense that he, when he says that line, he was waiting for his turn to speak. Yes. Like you could see him palpably like yes. waiting for the, the right time to yeah, then yeah, come yeah, and yeah. do his thing. Um, and looking back on it now, he, he how he acts in those scenes, uh, I don't think feels like the same character as how he is at the end of the movie. Mm. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that is a failing on his part as an actor, because mm. I think, you know, there is, uh, the film is, like we said before, wildly inconsistent anyway. Yeah. And obviously there's an argument to be made that there should be some kind of um, character development over the course of the film. Not that I think this film is particularly interested in doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think that when he's given more to do, actually he rises that challenge i think i think these sort of shorter scenes where he has small lines here and there and he's just got to do a quick reaction or i think those are the bits where it feels like you're john lennon doing a thing mm. you're john lennon as you are in the beatles films doing throwaway funny things yes but then as like you say as he gets more to do it's like oh actually he can he can do this quite well i think yeah and, and yeah. i think the his final speech at the end i thought was really quite moving he's got a powerful speech where he's dying and when he looks at the camera and he says i knew this was going to happen you must have known this was going to happen yeah. you know this is um and he has that he has this wonderful speech um where he says um i had three reasons for doing this the first reason was to get in the, uh, the three reasons for fighting the first reason to fight was to get in the second was to stay alive and i won't know the third until after they find me yeah um but I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be glad for it, whatever it is, you know. And it's yeah. just like, God, you know, again, it's just sort of like cuts through to this idea of there being like a layer of hypocrisy or mm. or um, callousness to yeah. how you know, um, char- to how soldiers like his character were treated. Yeah, and is a far cry from "Can I rob your ball, so It gives me great pleasure. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But he f- he fits very well in it. It's quite sort of canny casting, if you like. Um, putting John Lennon in a satire of sort of a Britishness, but 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 more particularly the British class system, you know, and, and its class hierarchies, you know. So I mean, this is a guy who I'm not sure whether he would have been thought of quite so much at the time, but um, uh, this this is a guy who there's sort of, there are sort of uh, there are contradictions about. John's relationship with class, you know, so you know, yeah, writing the song work, "Working Class Hero," you know, and he was probably the, the most most middle class of the Beatles, you know, sort of uh, lower middle class, if you like. Um, and uh, you know, and he was, and and there were, uh, you know, he would sort of talk about socialism and things, you know, and also like how to Paisley Rolls Royce, you know, you know. He, he, those those things yeah. can coexist, but yeah, yeah. but 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 it sort of it means that uh, the relationship between what he says and how he acts is just slightly kind of more more complex, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, so like Gripweed talks um, in a, a like a sort of a, a, a Scouse accent that's more pronounced than John's natural speaking voice. Okay, yeah. So you know, like when John sings Maggie May on Let yeah. It Be, the sort of uh, pronounced, or, or like the, you know, sort of, hey, oh, on the, um, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> there are bits of like uh, sort of Le- Lennon speech that you hear uh, in little outtakes and stuff where he's yeah. doing like, um, you know, like in Get Back where he's having a go at um, 
it, like in, in a it, like he's j- joking about having a go at Glyn John saying, "Hey, we're bloody stars, we are, you know, <laughs> yeah. bloody stars, you know." So it's it's that kind of like pronounced scouse that Gripweed talks in, right? yeah. And so, um, uh, uh, there is more. Um, so like he, he he can do that accent easily because it's quite, you know it's quite natural to him. It's more pronounced than his natural accent, but it's but it's easy enough. But like you know that uh, that's characterization, mm, you know. Yeah. So whether he's chosen that himself or he's been sort of asked to do that, I don't know, you know. But um, but but there there is he he is making like character choices in there. Yeah. You know, he's not just going there and being John Lennon. Yeah. You know? No, I and, agree. And yeah. he's he's contributing to this sort of overall idea of a, a sort of. Uh, I don't know it's, it's, it's sort of a comedy of manners uh, in a way um, in the way it sort of talk, talks about class and at this point like John is also like quite a significant figure in terms of the British relationship with so, with social class and just as all the Beatles are because they are um, they they are introducing working class regional British accents yeah. um, it, into sort of uh, British mainstream society. Not, not that nobody was aware that it was there, but suddenly it was sort of acceptable and fashionable to have accents like this, you know, yeah. kind of cool, you know. And like we, we've seen this in, uh, you know, if you remember in Wonderwall, there's a there's a character in that who sort of has a Scouse right. accent for no no particular narrative reason. And feels dubbed. Yes. Right? Yeah, that guy. He's yeah, certainly dubbed, yeah, yeah. You know. But yeah, you know, you think about, um, uh, you know, the popularity of the Beatles has meant um, that there's just sort of, and, and, you know, think about them at the Royal Variety performance. You know, no one has gone there and like made a crack on stage about, you know, uh, the, you know, the rich the people rich in people, the, yeah. yeah, rattling the jewellery, you know. So, yeah, I mean, he's a, he, he's a sort of significant, uh, you know, like, like totem of the British class system at the moment. And he's challenging it, um, you know, and he's disrupting it to some degree. So, you know, I suppose it's like, I, I sort of went into this thinking, well, Dick Lester has put John Lennon in this because... You know, maybe partly because uh, he's worked with him in help and he thinks he's a laugh and he thinks he might be quite good at it, but mainly just because he wants to sell the film. But actually, yeah, yeah. it's a good commercial um, decision. Yeah, yeah. But but actually, you know, if you think Dick Dick Lester's a a canny director and he's a thoughtful one as well, you know, you can see from this film, he's a he's a thoughtful guy. He's thinking about these ideas around social class and and actually thinking about putting someone like John Lennon, who is probably the in terms of like British society, the person who is doing most to uh, disrupt British society's relationship with social class, sticking him in this film, uh, it feels like like quite a significant casting decision in yeah, that context. Yeah, no, absolutely. Too. I think Michael Crawford's character is the only one that's really, uh, you know, as a central character, is the only one that actually uh, is fleshed out to a degree. All of the supporting cast are there to. Um, to act as elements in, within the satire, yeah, I think. Um, but but so I mean, actually, I mean, one thing about Michael Crawford's character is, is that which which we we haven't talked about him very much, even though you know it's like it, everyone knows him from uh, some others do have him, but you know, obviously he was a few years off that at this mm. point. Um, you can definitely see shades of it though, right? Oh, <laughs> There's a lot, absolutely, like the very very sort of. His physical comedy, yes, definitely. Like, yeah. You can absolutely see those chops and the expression, and he is like this sort yes. of like naive, cheery persona that he he you know yeah. delivers on. Right, right, yeah. But but you know, and th- there are bits in his performance that are, that are sort of 
quite, uh, quite shocking in a way, which he delivers very well. So th- there is a framing device in the film whereby um, uh, bits of it are not narrated, but sort of framed by later on he has been captured and he's a prisoner of war. And he is um, talking to uh, a Nazi officer who is sort of his, his equivalent, it seems. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they have quite a lot in common in terms of uh, their own experience of uh, the class system of their respective countries. They seem to be at sort of similar place in the social hierarchy and seem to have similar experiences of war in that they they approach it quite casually. Neither of them is particularly concerned about the men dying under their command. And uh, and in particular, they talk about that there is a point at which um, a good body asks the uh, the Nazi officer, you know, how, how do you feel about all the, all the Jews who have died? And and the Nazi says, you know, it basically says, I'm not that bothered, you know. And Goodbody says, yes, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm that bothered either, you know. And that and that's quite, uh, that's quite shocking actually. Yeah. Like in in a way, you know, this, this, this you get to see this whole thing of um, uh, it's it, and it's just sort of writ large in those scenes. Um, this whole thing it's been sort of not not hinting at it's been doing more than hint, hinting at it um uh, but this idea of the sort of upper echelons um treating the whole thing quite casually um is um the humanity of it is is just is just lost on them really you know it doesn't really enter their thinking <laughs> Uh, we should probably talk about the fact that there are a number of Beatles adjacent references uh, in the film, mm. in- including uh, an incredible cameo uh, in the cinema. Yeah, I'm teeing you up to explain what it is. Right. Okay. So um... <laughs> if that wasn't obvious. Oh God, sorry. Yeah. God, we've been doing this for so long. No. <laughs> when you're signposting things yeah. quite so obviously I really I really should pick up on these just keys. for future reference when I say something like that and I'm also stamping on your foot and tapping you on the shoulder <laughs> it's your turn to jump in I wondered why you were doing <laughs> so yes um, uh, so uh, how how I won the war uh, sort of breaks the fourth wall at certain points and it, it uh, characters will talk directly to camera but also they will make reference at times to the fact that they're in a film mm. uh, and talk about things like uh, like commenting on on the script and like and how it's written and things like that. It doesn't happen lots, but it happens every, every now and again. So the, there is one point at which uh, a remark is made about the actors' relatives, like watching them in the cinema. That's right, yeah. It then cuts to a cinema where uh, two uh, two ladies are watching the film "How I Won the War" in the cinema, and it is the it's. Dandy Nichols and Gretchen Franklin, who are the same uh, ladies who, in the film Help, are standing in the street saying, wave, go on, I don't like to, go on, wave. You know, those, those two ladies, you know. Um, this is why I get you to explain it, because you right. can do the voices. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that I, I looked at that and I thought, that's the same yeah that's definitely the same you know i looked it up on imdb you know just to be completely sure yes it is it is the same two women it's obviously like both these films directed by richard lester um so on one level you could think oh is richard lester just 
putting them in his film because he likes them. It, does he like the idea of... Um, is it J.J. Abrams always has... What's the guy's name? Greg? Uh, it has oh, the same yeah. actor in his yeah, films. Yeah. He was in um, Lost. Yeah, he was he's a in, pilot in Lost. Yeah, and he's uh, in Star Wars. So he's called... Uh, he's, uh, Double G, and his name is Greg. Greg Grunberg. Greg Grunberg, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he like, does he like the idea of having... Uh, like? They call it sort of like mascot cast, casting or mm, something like yeah, that. It's yeah. like they've always got like the same person at least playing like a small role in it. Yeah, know? like uh, Pixar always has John Ratzenberger doing a voice. Right, yeah, that, that kind of thing. You know, and maybe he likes that. Although, you know, I can't remember them being in Superman 3. <laughs> yeah, I forgot Richard Lesson made that. Yeah. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of it being a shared universe. Yeah. And it's their universe. universe. Yeah. It's not even like John Lennon's. <laughs> I like the idea of it being their universe. <laughs> They're in two John Lennon films. Yeah. And also Superman 3 would be a, would be really cap it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but they are just... I, I like this... Like bringing back this idea of these um, two ladies who are talking between themselves like two old ladies would do in a very sort of like everyday matter of fact kind of way about mm. what's happening on screen. Yeah. Just as a way to puncture the moment. Because that happens <laughs> at a time when a guy is going through, um, it's Spall, I think, is going through um, a really terrible time. And um, one of the uh, uh, officers in the troop is saying, "Put the cam- turn the cameras away, trying to, to not, trying to give him some sort of privacy, I guess, yeah. for this sort of like mental break he's having. Mm. And then just cutting to two old ladies, commenting that on an everyday way in a similar kind of vein they're doing help. I yeah. think um, it's just a, quite a nice comedy conceit. Yeah, yeah. So so the, so they're in it anyway. Yes, and, yes. Um, so, but you know, I suppose the question is like, is is this a reference to the Beatles or is it just a sort of Richard Lester, sort of artistic flourish? I think kind of it's thing, a, right? um, I, I would like to think that it's a reference to the Beatles um, I think also you can add to that. There is a line early on where um, the trooper convening for uh, it, it, to march with these wooden rifles, yeah. um, and Roy Kinnear, obviously who also was in help, yep. um, turns to John Lennon and says, "Are you married?" He says, "No, I play the harmonica." Yes, that's um, right. and yeah. it's a real like, and it it clearly makes no sense um as a line of film but actually is also can be seen as a nice little reference to the fact that this is john lennon mm-hmm. i feel like they, those kind of i don't think they are what you might term as lampshading to the audience that you know here is we're, we're making a joke about john lennon has been a beetle yeah. but it, but it does work in that yeah. context yeah. in that way yeah so yeah and, there, and there's a bit of um uh, so there's uh, John, John Junkin is in it, like has a cameo in it as well. John Junkin who played Shake in A Hard Day's Night. Um, so again, uh, that's uh, that, that's that, that may just be someone who Richard Lester likes to cast, or yeah. it may, or it may be it, it may be a sort of beat. Let's like, like, maybe we think of these things as Beatles references. Yes, because as this, we are wants to do. Yeah, <laughs> because, because this is the only thing that we've seen these people in. Maybe. Yes, yeah, you know, maybe it's that. Yeah, but. Um, and there's also, I mean, this is not a Beatles reference, but also uh, there's a character called Juniper, who's played by Jack McGarren, who yes. is uh, Oscar Collins in Wonderwall as a 
as covered by this podcast in the last season. If you do you want, I mean, you told me this just before we started recording. If you'd like, I can pretend to be surprised <laughs> again now for the benefit of our audience, um, in the same way that I actually genuinely was when you told me because I, I hadn't clocked that at all, and yeah. and it feels like a really obvious thing to have to have picked up on because I yeah. did recognise his face as well. I didn't look it up, and um, yeah, and just, now it makes sense. I just knew he looked familiar because it, this one of those films was lots of um, actors in it who look familiar um uh, and and so i spent a fair bit of time pausing it and looking at imdb to try mm. and f- like figure out where i'd seen them before you know before we we sort of explore something that's probably worth highlighting about the character juniper uh, i also i did read somewhere and i didn't spot him but um i read somewhere that neil aspinall has a small cameo in the role as a soldier did you spot him at all i didn't spot it i was aware of it because i'd, I'd read that it was happening yeah. uh, but I, I, to be honest it may by the time i read it i'd sort of already watched half of it so yes you might have missed it yeah. I, yeah I was the same yeah but it'd be interesting to see where that is I'll probably look it up i think it, it, it i think he plays a character called who's listed as a death soldier so it may be oh, right. maybe he's literally just yeah he just he just ha- has a death yeah you know, basically <laughs> you know well, that's pretty cool yeah, yeah yeah the character of juniper as the clown i mean that is really where the biggest uh surrealist element of the film comes in when he suddenly starts he brings in like a like a rocking horse or like a, yeah. a horse and uh, literally dresses a clown yeah. and they uh, use his character to make the point that there is always one person who ends up being the, the clown of the group mm. um, and makes jokes. Uh, but, but then it's presented in the film as like a performance, like a, an actual comedian's performance uh, in the film. Very bizarre. What ends up, I think for, for all of my um, suggestions that actually a modern audience might find more uh, in this film than I think how it was uh, received at the time, I think something that modern audiences will struggle with is the point at which Juniper actually paints his face like a minstrel and uh, and continues to have that for a large section of the film. Yeah. Not the kind of thing you tend to see in films these days. (laughs) No, it's true. Uh, uh, yeah, and and for good reason. Very good um, reason. Yeah, but, uh, and I wasn't expecting that because, and I realised, you know, again, going back to what I said right at the start, it was of its time. Yeah, um, of course. You, you know, kind and, of forget that. I think, especially because this film does feel, feel like it has full of the uh, the sixties uh, genre bending stuff that we've been talking about. It, it does kind of feel like it has a modern sensibility in yeah. how it explores war and yeah. and and. Uh, satirizes that so yeah it was quite a shock i think when that came up on screen and uh and it sort of reminded me it's like oh this is actually a film where this would have been deemed more acceptable yeah um, so it was yeah. made at a time where this would have been deemed more acceptable I mean. yeah yeah but uh, but i mean also you know i mean you know uh, uh, blackface was being used it is only relatively recently that it has become i mean you know the, the little britain were doing it you know back in the sort of the Yes, of course. Yeah, you know, we're not that far off uh, from it being the kind of thing that um, was just kind of thought uncomplicated, like maybe mm. maybe sort of risque but uncomplicated. You know, it's only relatively recently that we've that we've you know, arrived at the point where you, you just don't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. One of the things I, that caught me off guard straight off the bat that was this this premise that it sets up of 
good body recounting uh, the story in flashback form, but then the other mem- the other cast members um, talking about their characters as well to camera in with knowing what the future is, is in, has in store for them yeah you know so this idea of actually they're all kind of part of that flashback retelling in a way uh, and there's a brilliant like obviously i mentioned it earlier the com- comedic motif of this one character where the only sort of interesting thing about him is that he dies in north africa and he's constantly mentioning <laughs> the, are we in north africa yet you know yeah, yeah. um uh which is which is brilliant but um but yeah, I kind of like as a setup. I kind of um, thought that was uh, really clever. Um, you know, you don't. There, there's one thing to break the fourth wall, but to have the entire cast doing it, yeah, uh, and uh, as an ensemble doing it, um, like they're they're all working towards the same narrative device, which doesn't normally happen. Like normally, you have someone breaking the fourth wall, and it's a secret, um, closed off discussion between them and the audience. Right, but yeah. actually, this is quite open. Everyone is in on this. Yeah. Um uh you know, this this the uh this setup, this um telling. And yeah. I think it's um yeah, I just I thought that was really clever and I just, I can't think of another film where that's kind of been the case, so it feels quite forward thinking. Yeah, that's true. Because actually, because um, all I'd ever seen of this film is is the clip where John is talking to camera just before he fires he says green, 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 green. and yeah. then he fires the flare gun. And um Which never made sense to me before I've actually watched the film. No. no so I was no. like, this this is a film of absolute gobbledygook because yeah, yeah, yeah. that that means nothing to me. But actually in right. the context of the film, it just about makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But because that's all I'd seen, I presumed that like, A John's role was slightly bigger and B that he he was the one who broke the fourth wall. Yes. Like he was the course. sort of audience surrogate agree, or yeah. you know, and uh, uh, that had been my assumption. But you're right, it's a it it's quite rare to have a thing where Everyone's breaking the fourth yeah, wall. Yeah. You know, I think of um, <laughs> this is actually when I think of like breaking the fourth wall. I think the very first time I understood that as a concept, um, and again, like in my mind, probably why I think of it as something that normally is a central character acting as a narrator with a special connection to the audience. Mm. Um, and I think of it as Zach Morris doing a timeout in Saved by the Bell. Yeah, of course. Right? Of course. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's the um, uh, epitome of fourth wall breaking scenes in any kind of show or film. I think. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But mean... no, I agree with you. I, I I think you're right. I I kind of always assumed that John Lennon was the because also because it's John Lennon. So in, mm. when I saw clips of this before watching the film, I kind of assumed that he was the one who was commenting on the film as it happened because. Yeah. Who wouldn't think that it's John Lennon? Yeah, and again, it kind of feels like it's capitalising on. You know, I, I guess I would, uh, assumed that he had a starrier role in the film because why wouldn't you capitalise on John Lennon being in your film in that way? Well, yeah, you know, because it, it it felt it felt to me my assumption had been that um, you know, let me maybe this was sort of the the start of a of a of a whole thing where you you put you put a famous pop star in your film. To uh, to sell it a bit, you mm. know? and uh, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that, that was do- done cynically, and like as we've discussed, you know, I, neither of us thinks that's the only reason he's in the film, and he certainly brings a lot more to it. But you know, it, so it, like pop stars have already been in movies, mm. I mean, not least the Beatles themselves. But I mean, uh, but you know, you've had Elvis and you've had Cliff Richard, but these are uh, musical films that are there to showcase 
They're, they're, they're vehicles songs. for them, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that there have been examples of it. You know, Frank, Frank Sinatra was acting as well. You know, long before this, but it it, it does feel kind of significant. Mm. This idea of taking not just a pop star, but like here is the most popular thing in the United Kingdom and the world at the moment. Um, uh, we'll, we'll put them in the film, and that will kind of uh, that, that will change it in some way. It will it, it will sell it certainly, um, but I think um, th- that had kind of been my assumption that this was a thing that would that Dick Lester thought well this will sell the film. But uh, having seen it and having discussed it now, you know, I, I I don't think that's the case at all. Like you know, as I said, I think I think the the idea of class is really significant. And as I say, I think you know John was a sort of totemic figure in that regard. It makes absolute sense to put him in this film in in that context and i think he he delivers a lot of value when he might not have uh uh, been expected to and actually like when you hear interviews uh that he was doing at the time and the interviews that he did later he's quite casual about the whole thing and he, he certainly says you know no i'm not really planning to do much more acting because you know it's not I, I, because I'm quite limited in what I can do. It's yeah, not, it's not, it's not a career I want to pursue necessarily. Um, but um, you know, he's he's almost kind of selling himself short in a way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's also also a very interesting situation to be in when you're saying, actually, I don't really think I'm a good actor. Yeah. But I agreed to be in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe to someone's regrets at the end of the day, but yeah. obviously to no one's regret. Yeah. Um, because it's actually quite good, isn't it? And, you know, just going back to what I said before, still genuinely surprised that this film doesn't appear to get as much recognition, uh, I think, as actually on our watch. Uh, I think it probably deserves. Yeah. So let the reappraisal start now, uh, I say. Anyone listening to this now uh, who hasn't seen How I Won the War, I would uh, urge you to go and seek it out and give it a watch and let us know what you think. Do you agree? Does it deserve to get more recognition than it currently does? Please let us know if you do seek out the film and you watch it. You can contact us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. And also, if you enjoy listening to this episode, please give us a like, leave us a review. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye bye. Bye bye.